Today we're going to be in Psalm 15. It's a wonderful psalm, maybe a familiar psalm, but definitely a challenging psalm. So let's read that out now. This is God's word. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's ask for God's favor as we consider this psalm together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes, reveal to us wonderful things out of your word now. Help us to understand your holiness. Help us to live according to it. And Lord, help us to understand ourselves better as well. So we ask by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us now in Christ's name, amen. Well, not long ago, I was talking with a man and in the course of our conversation, he said something like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love Christ, but I don't love Christians. Well, how could that be? Why would someone say that? Well, as this man saw what Jesus talked about in his word, and then as he compared that to Christians that he knew, he saw a major disconnect. How they lived throughout the week was different than how they lived and appeared to be on Sunday. He was not a fan of what I call Sunday-only Christianity. And neither should we be if we are genuine followers of Jesus. Well, you may have had similar conversations with people in your sphere of influence. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're feeling the same way. You're feeling that so many people you know are not living according to what they say they believe. Well, how can we as college church become a community that reflects Jesus with our words And with our actions, how can we become more like Christ? Well, the answer begins with each one of us, individual. The change is going to happen each person at a time. And so as we consider this psalm, we need to consider this question. Who can dwell with a holy God? And as we answer that question... We will be able to live out this life before others that pleases him. Well, some have termed Psalm 15 and its counterpart, Psalm 24, as entrance psalms. These were psalms that were sung out as God's people were going to come into the presence of God. I liken it to a baseball game when... You you know what happens at a baseball game. When someone walks up, they've chosen music to walk up to. Something that reflects them. Something that reflects their character. Something that gets the crowd going. 
Well, this is the walk-up music for God's people. This is music that God's people would be singing that would remind them of what was required of them as worshipers of Yahweh. And that's what what it's going to serve for us today. It's going to give us a template in that same function as it served in the ancient times. The structure of the psalm is fairly simple. It begins with a question there in verse 1. It's a question that we all need to ask. And then we have the answer to that question in verses 2 to 5. And finally, we're given a promise that if we heed that answer, if we live according to that answer, that promise is ours. So if you're taking notes, question The question that everybody must ask. Second, the answer that we all must heed. And third, the promise that is ours if we heed that answer and live according to it. So let's consider that question that we all must ask. What is that question? It is this. Who may dwell with a holy God? David asked that question in two different ways. If you look in verse one, he says, who shall sojourn in your tent? If you remember, at this time, the temple was not yet built. So God had chosen to dwell in a tent, a tabernacle. That's where God's people would meet with him. Then he says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? This was Jerusalem, the place where the temple would be built eventually, where God's presence was said to dwell. What is he getting at? He's asking, Lord, who can come into the presence of a holy God? It's a fair question. It's a question that all of Israel would have been asking because throughout their history, they had seen that the answer was not everyone. Not everyone. Remember, Moses spoke face to face with God on the mountain, but everyone else couldn't even touch the mountain. There were priests who could perform rituals and purification rites to enter into the presence of God. But that was only for a moment, and that was not for everyone. And so it was a key question that Israelites would be asking. And it's a key question for us, too, who want to know how we can live in the presence of God. How can we live in the presence of God? Why is it such an important question? Because the answer will determine whether or not we can live with him forever. And it's a question then we all need to ask. So quick reality check. Are you asking this question? Are you asking this question in your daily life? How can I dwell in the presence of God? How can I please him with my thoughts, my actions, and my words? Or are you kind of going through the religious motions? You're here at church, check. You read the Bible, Check. Try to give some money. Check. Try to be kind to others. Check. Maybe you're going through the religious motions, but are you desiring him? Do you want to be with him? Is your heart engaged with the living God? Or maybe you're like me and your life is stressful. It's busy. You've got a lot going on. There's trials, there's hardships, there's sicknesses. I know uh, my wife, until this morning, hadn't been to church in the last three weeks because we had all these different sicknesses in our home. 
Maybe you feel so underwater that you can't even consider, you don't feel like you can consider that question. How can I dwell with God? Well, it's a good thing you're here this morning to consider that question, that we can consider that together. How can I dwell with a holy God? And we see the answers there in verses two to five. So we move from this question to the answer. And what's striking about this picture of a person who can dwell with the Lord is what is not mentioned. David does not say, he who can dwell with the Lord must be reading his Bible for two hours a day or conducting all-night prayer vigils. He who dwells with the Lord must come into his presence wearing certain clothes or singing certain songs. He doesn't mention anything of that sort. Instead, he mentions character qualities of the worshiper of God. He's saying this is what the person who can dwell in God's presence looks like. He gives us a portrait of that person. It's a portrait that we can look at ourselves and and see where we are lining up in light of that picture. Here the text is screaming to us that Sunday-only Christians are not the ones who are going to dwell in God's presence. Instead, it's only those who are transformed people, people whose hearts have been changed so that they reflect the Lord. Those people can dwell with him. So what are the traits of this transformed person who can dwell in the presence of God? I believe the summary is found right there in verse 2. Look with me. It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. As a quick aside, throughout this whole psalm, the personal pronoun he is used. God is talking not just to men, but he's talking to men and women. This is a psalm for all of God's people. Kind of, okay, back to the text. Here is a picture of one whose life is lived with complete integrity. One who is blameless, who literally works righteousness. He works justice. To be blameless is to be one without blame. To be one who lives in the light, who is above reproach, who is set apart from the rest of the world's ways and system. In short, it's someone who is holy. And holiness here is defined by how our faith impacts our daily life and our speech, and our integrity, our justice, our finances. It's our faith in action. J.C. Ryle in his classic book, Holiness, said the following. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. All of its inhabitants are holy. All its occupations are are holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth, end quote. Well, here we see this blameless person as one who is being made ready for heaven. Consider those who were called blameless throughout the Old Testament. Consider Moses, Job, Daniel, even David, 
is called blameless. He calls himself blameless later in the Psalms. So here, blameless doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean one who is walking according to the ways of the Lord. God is showing us through this psalm that anyone who wants to dwell in the presence of God must be holy. Anyone who wants to dwell in the presence of God must be holy. And he explains what this holy life, this blameless life, this righteous life looks like in verses two to five. And I've summarized the descriptions with four character qualities. And the first character quality that we see in one who can dwell with God is to be blameless in speech. He or she is blameless in speech. We see that at the end of verse two, where David, and verse three, where David gives both the positive of what to do in our speech and the negative, what not to do. So positively in verse two, he tells us that this person speaks truth in his heart. You'll remember that Jesus, when, it, when he taught, he said it's out of the heart of the man that comes slander and these words that we say. So how do we speak truth to our heart? It's by filling our hearts infusing our hearts with the ultimate truth, the truth of God's word, and letting that truth dictate what we think about God, what we think about this world, and what we think about living in this world. If we're speaking truth to our heart, we're judging truth by the standard of God's word. Well, in contrast, if we're to be blameless in our speech, the text says we'll avoid other types of speech. Speech such as slander. Well, what is slander but spreading false or damaging information about another person? It means resisting speech that might harm someone else. There, it's described in verse three as doing evil to your neighbor. It's speech that does not further gossip or insults. You see, slanderous talk or insults against someone else, they find their end at the blameless person. The text says that they don't take up reproach against the friend, meaning they don't possess insults when they receive them from outside. They don't possess those against that person that, they were, that uh, was talked against, and they don't further those insults to others. Remember what Proverbs 17.4 says in this regard. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So at this point, I just want to pause and ask you a diagnostic question. Are you blameless in your speech? When you hear that common currency of our everyday conversation, a juicy tale about someone someone's life, a damaging uh, piece of information against someone else. What do you do with that information? Does it die with you or do you spread it along? Well, that's the first character quality with one who can dwell with God. He must be blameless in speech. We see the second character quality there in verse four, and that's to be blameless in justice. The text in verse four says it's the one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. 
And at first we read this and we are confused because we say, well, Lord, don't you want us to love our enemies? Aren't we to love all people? The answer is yes. So what does this mean? This is really about the posture of which we approach people in terms of honor. So the person who despises the vile or the wicked person means this person does not rejoice when evil people succeed. This person does not tune in when a celebrity cheats on his or her spouse. Does not rejoice when the successful CEO who has shady business practices does not rejoice in his successes and looks to him for his answers. It means that the presence of riches and fame or power or influence does not sway him or her from showing partiality to this evil, the person who does evil deeds. Instead, the text says this person honors those who fears the Lord, no matter their background or class or status or position in society. As I was thinking about someone that we could honor who fears the Lord, who also honored others, I thought of Mama Abia from East Africa in Congo. I met Mama Abia a number of years ago, and she was one of the most observably joy-filled, godly women I had met. Mama Abia came from a very poor background. She was horrifically abused, but she found the Lord. And out of her poverty and out of her abuse, she founded an organization called Sipama that was designed to reach women that no one wanted to touch. These were mentally ill women who had been abused so much that they had become mentally ill. And throughout the years, Mama Abia ministered to these women and brought hope and healing in the gospel to them. And six months ago, Mama Abia died. And the partner that we have over there in Africa sent a long tribute to this woman of God one who feared the Lord, and one who was blameless in justice, and rightly so. So as we think about this character quality of being blameless in justice, I would ask you the question, who do you honor? Who do you allow to influence your life? Is it the mama abias of the world? Or is it those that the world puts forward to you? The celebrities, the influential, the rich, the powerful. So what does it take to dwell in the presence of God? It takes one who is blameless in speech. One who is blameless in justice. And then we see the third character quality here, and that's to be blameless in integrity. Look with me at the end of verse 4. It's saying that it's someone who, whose word means something, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In the context, this is talking about someone who takes an oath, which back in the ancient world, an oath was like a bond, like a contract, who would keep his oath and keep it to his own hurt even when it was damaging to him or her. Well, as I was thinking about this, I'm a sports fan, And I was thinking about Jerry Colangelo. He's the former owner of the Phoenix Suns, which is, if you're not a sports fan, it's a professional basketball team in the NBA. Jerry Colangelo was famous for handshake deals. 
If Jerry shook your hand, you had a deal, and he kept his word. Well, one day, this was a number of years ago, after the season, he approached a player. And this was a high-level player, and he said, we want you to play on our team. But the thing is, we have no money next year to pay you. We're going to have to pay you less. But if you shake hands with me, then we'll pay you millions of dollars the following year. Well, the player agreed to this handshake deal. The catch was, into that first season where he was making far less than he was worth, he got injured. He tore up his knee. And back in those days, when you tore up your knee, you were never the same player. And so he was not worth millions of dollars anymore. But Jerry Colangelo, being the man of integrity that he was, honored that handshake deal. And when the next season came, he gave this player a multiple-year contract at a cost of millions to himself. Well, I suspect in your own life, keeping your word is not going to cost you millions of dollars. But the diagnostic question from this section is this. Are you someone that can be counted on? Does your word mean something? Do you do what you say and say what you mean? Even when it hurts. Who can dwell in the presence of God? One who is blameless in speech. One who is blameless in justice. One who is blameless in integrity. And now we come to the final character quality of one who dwells with God. It's being blameless in finances. We see that at the beginning of verse 5. This is someone who does not put out money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. You see, lending in the ancient world isn't like it is today. Right now, probably all of us have borrowed money in some way. But back in that day, it was only the poor who really borrowed money. And those who borrowed money many times were charged exorbitant amounts of interest so that their poverty was only exacerbated. It only got worse as they uh, borrowed money from others. So the principle here is really, are you honoring God with your finances in a way that others are not put out as you are prospering? Are you honoring God with your finances? So the diagnostic question for us in this section is that. How are you honoring God in your finances? It's, it's tax season. I have, I'll admit I haven't done my taxes yet. But are you giving money to whom money is due? Are you giving money at, in a way that honors God in your giving to church or to the needy or in your investments? If you work in the world of finance, are your business practices harming others or are they mutually beneficial for you and other people? Are you honoring God with your money? Well, as we get to the end of this list, I believe God wants us to examine ourselves in light of this standard of being blameless. It's this light that is shining on us as worshipers. Who can dwell in the presence of God? And if we're honest, we have to admit that none of us lives up to this standard of being blameless in speech and justice and integrity and finance. None of us. That is, except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, 
to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the wonderful trajectory of this passage. We've asked the question, who can dwell with a holy God? And we've seen God's answer. Only those who live a holy and blameless life. The solution then is to have the righteousness, the blamelessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how can we do that? How can we have his righteousness? We can do that by admitting that on our own, we cannot live up to God's holy standard. We can do that by confessing our sins and turning to Jesus, acknowledging that he has died for us, that the wrath of God was put on him. It should have been put on us, but it was put on him. And he died and rose again three days later. And now where is he? Dwelling at the right hand of God the Father forever. So when we put our trust in Christ, our situation is the same as the Lord Jesus. His standard of living becomes our standard. His record becomes our record. That's a pretty good deal. And so I wonder if you're here this morning and you have never done that. You have never heard that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And you've never put your trust in Jesus. If you're trying to fulfill these requirements before a holy God, you will not do it. You cannot do it. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. But for many of us, we have done that. We've been maybe walking with the Lord Jesus for years. What does this passage have to say to us? Well, let me suggest two things. First, confess. Confess. As, you, as we've gone through the different parts of this text, surely the Holy Spirit has been bringing to your mind and attention certain areas where you are not living according to his standard. Remember that the Lord Jesus called us not because of anything we've done, but because of his own mercy and grace. But why did he call us? So that we might be a holy people, holy and blameless before him. So that leads to the second application, and that's strive. Strive for holiness. Throughout the whole New Testament, we are called to be holy as God is holy. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We have been given the resources that we need to succeed. So the question is, are you striving for holiness? Or have you kind of become complacent, apathetic, thinking that God doesn't care about how you live? Well, when we trust in Jesus, his righteousness becomes ours. His record becomes our record. And that's all the more to strive in his power to become like him. Well, we've explored this question, how can we dwell with the Lord? And we've seen that the answer is only those who are holy and blameless before him. And we've seen that the only solution to this answer is trusting in the Lord Jesus and striving for holiness in his strength. Now we come to the end of the psalm and we see this promise, this gospel promise for all those who dwell with God, which is this, you will never be moved. That means if we're trusting in Jesus and if the Lord is empowering us to live a blameless life, we can never be shaken. 
We will never be moved. Well, what does that mean? First, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you will be free from hardship or difficulty or loss or trauma or any of the other things that we experience in a fallen world. Those things are given as we live in a fallen world. It doesn't mean we won't be passed over for a promotion or that justice won't be satisfied fully here on earth. In a fallen world, we can expect sometimes those things to happen. But it does mean that we will have security. Be never, be, to never be moved means we will have both internal security and eternal security. What do I mean by that? Well, internal security, Proverbs 10.9 says that he who walks with integrity walks securely. That is, when our life and our doctrine match up with one another and we live a whole life, a blameless life, a life of integrity, we have nothing to fear. We will walk securely, internally, but also eternally. If we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, his righteousness has become our own. His life has become our life. We can never be shaken from that. The moment you believed in the Lord Jesus, you were given the perfect righteousness and record of him. But as we grow in the Christian life and as we strive for holiness, we will grow in the confidence of what happened on that first day. As we see that he is working in us, he is making us more holy, we will grow in confidence that we have that righteousness of Christ. And we will know that we will never be moved because the Lord Jesus will never be moved from the presence of God. So as we close, Christian, let this promise that you will never be moved, let that cause you to rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done for you, what he has done for me. We are not deserving of this kind of grace. He has called us, and he has called us for a purpose, to reflect him, to be holy and blameless, to worship him forever. And my prayer is that College Church increasingly would reflect this character of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that college church would not be a place where someone could say there's Sunday only Christians there. But instead, people would look at our lives, look at the, our good works, and they would glorify God because of what they see in and through us. May that be true of us. May that be true of you as we seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful promise that we have our righteousness because of the Lord Jesus. We know that you are holy and we are not. But Lord, what a wonderful invitation that you give us into this life of holiness. And Lord, I wonder if there are some even now who are apathetic or have thought that wrongly that their life doesn't matter before you. How they live doesn't matter because of Christ and what he's done. Lord, help us as a people to strive for holiness, 
knowing that your grace is abundant, your mercy floods over us. And Lord, may we be a people that reflects you and that the watching world would say, those people follow the Lord Jesus. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.